second of three podcasts, NEC dance producer Kathy Levy continues her conversation with British choreographer Wayne McGregor. Were you performing at that time? I was, yeah. And so how long did you keep performing? When did you, you know, leave the stage, if you will? Yeah. Or maybe you haven't left the stage. I don't no, know. No, I have left the stage. I haven't um, seen you perform in a long time. No, no. I've just made a 3D um, film for the Hayward Gallery that I did with the Open Ended Group that worked on Biped with Merce, which is me dancing in 3D. You have to wear 3D glasses, and it's a really beautiful oh, piece. Fantastic. It's on at the Hayward. Um, so I was persuaded out of retirement to do that. But I did my last so shows. It's, it's in the gallery. If it you was, go yeah, it's in the gallery. Uh, excellent. Yeah. All right. Um, I um, retired really, so I was 33 when I retired, so that would have been in um, 2003. And so I did my last shows in Melbourne for the Commonwealth Games. Okay. So um, I danced with the company all that time, so I That's danced with I the company you know, 12 years or something. Was that, was that hard to leave the stage? It really wasn't, to be yeah. honest. I, I think I always, it was, it's always a very hard thing when, you've, when you're a choreographer to put your piece out there and then to have feedback from an audience or a response from an audience, whether people talk to you afterwards or not. There's always a funny tension there about who talks. Sometimes they don't talk to you because they're shy, but sometimes it's because they don't like it. You know, there's always a fun. But doing that and performing is doubly worse. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's worse to be a performer and to be the choreographer because they might well have liked your performance but not the choreography or not the choreography but like, you know, there's a whole myriad of possibilities. Right. Right. The only thing I loved about performing, obviously the moment on stage, but also the moment before the show starts. You know, I found nowadays that at seven o'clock, if the show starts at eight, I've got nothing to do for that hour. <laughs> where normally I would be warming up and getting ready. And a, 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 there's a place for your nerves or a place for your energy. You know, and that I, um, I kind of miss that. But I discovered a lot about my own body and my own physicality through dancing. And I have to still dance now in the studio to really feel that I'm, the work is still connected to the way in which I think about physical language. But in terms of performance, I was never, I was never really that obsessed with performing, although I enjoyed it. I, I absolutely love choreography. And I can't imagine a day where I wouldn't be making choreography. I love being in the studio creating, that's my favorite thing to do. And when you're in the studio, does the work come to you primarily through your own physicality or is it something that you really think about in your mind or, you know, maybe this is the launching of the discussion about how those things overlap? Yeah, I mean, I, th I, I think it, usually I'm thinking about a piece for a long time. So I've usually got themes and ideas for a piece and they're kind of like bubbling away after I've foraged for information. I read a lot about them. I've got some context. So when I start in the studio, I'm in a state of preparedness, I'd say. So I'm there not knowing exactly what I'm going to do. So I'm not one of those choreographers that writes in the book all the ideas and all the spatial patterns and all that. I'm all fascinated to see those notebooks. But um, I, I'm in a state of preparedness and ready to go. And I think I typically work in, in three three different ways. Obviously, sometimes I just come in and I give physical material. So it's through my body and I give it to the dancers. I see how they respond to it and I adapt it and make make sense of it in that way. And that's a typical way choreographers work. Um, another way I w work often is I work with bodies more like architectural objects or objects to think with. And I'm on the outside of it looking in and I sculpt them, basically. I find, you know, different ways of having those bodies interact and interweave. Um, and the tensions between those bodies I find really interesting. And that's much more of an objective way of choreography. And then I guess the third way I work a lot is in task-based work. And tasks are a thing where you ask the, you set up the circumstances for the dancers to solve a physical problem. Or not even a physical problem, it might be a spatial problem or an imaginative problem. And they respond to it in the way that they 
best can and out of it physical language emerges and that's how I would generate typically my material one of those three ways but for me choreography so that's in the generation of language but for me really choreography is in the composition of those things choreography is a compositional art so it's about what is the interaction of those elements so the language with the interpersonal relationships with light with set to create meaning or to give a sense to something. And I think that's the main job of the choreographer. So um, I think it's that kind of uh, coordination of events that allows me to make, make the work that I'm interested in making. But what distinguishes one work from another? Is it some kind of thematic... When you say yeah. you're in a state of preparedness, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about for your own company yeah, because yeah. we'll talk about special commissions after. Sure. But, but what is the, the germ? Or, or how, how does that get you to that place of preparedness that then gets you into the studio? Well, there's always a very particular kind of point of departure, I'd say. And that might be, um, you know, some physical thought. More often, it's some kind of philosophical thought or it's some thought that I've come to through working with cognitive scientists or science in general. It's something which is often about the tension or the complication between the brain and the body. It's something about actually how is it that we see ourselves, this relationship of the I, you know, who are we? Are we really two separate things, a mind and a body? Or are we one organic kind of whole that senses things and creates meaning from things? So I'm very interested in the these relationships of brain and body, not just in terms of the functional aspects of how you can do complex coordinations by actually organising the brain differently or actually helping the brain understand the body differently. But also just the actual, the philosophical debates about whether or not we are kind of ghosts in a machine or whether or not we are actually embodying the ways in which we think about things. I think it's very interesting now if you look at um, the way in which science and technology is developing. And, you know, we always think science is, is very predictive. It's going to be like this. But actually, we, we live in a state where actually the science is really well in advance of how we're living. So actually, as a contemporary choreographer, what I'm interested in doing is making things of the moment. But if we think about our relationship to science and technology now, like I'm talking about the general population, it's actually very regressive because actually science is way way further down the line technology is way way further down the line than actually how it's um, inhabited at the current time so what I'm interested in is being current by looking at the science and the kind of the the very cutting edge science that's happening at the moment so whether that's to do with cloning or whether that's to do with what bodies will be like um, in 10 years from now even though we have the capability to do it now or what supercomputers will be like what will environments be like you know they, they've got these all amazing things now about how you might be able to grow buildings so architecturally grow buildings without drawing without drawing them or without people building them you know how is it that you might be able to annotate your own spaces so that you could go through uh, go on a road and you could decide well this is a, a place where I met my friend and we had this great chat about such and such and you can annotate it in a way that when you drive past that road you can actually see a version of that event so memory collides with a sense of reality or what are the realities you know um, I'm very interested in this sense of, well, what actually is reality? You know, is it out there in the world, the thing that we see, that we, th- we, we think we process? Or is it something to do with this interior life? I can be talking to you now, and that's one version of my real world, but I can have lots of thoughts and plans and ideas where actually nothing to do with this conversation. It doesn't mean I'm not in the conversation. It just means as a human being, we have this capability to do more than just one thing. And those things really fascinate me, and those are the things that I really try and 
push and instill into pieces. You know, I'm interested in non-linear narratives. I'm interested in multiple narratives. I'm interested in, you know, um, the audience is doing some of the work in creating meaning from a piece. I'm interested in not spoon-feeding um, particular ideas. I'm interested in an audience having to navigate their way through a piece of work where they actually have to make connections and do a bit of the work, where they have to sit forward rather than sit back. I'm interested in actually... Um, disrupting an audience so actually they feel irritated. I'm interested at points in actually um, making the audience be really engaged. I want to sometimes work with music so that it it's so um, obtrusive that you can't see the physicality, that actually there's a, a separation between the physicality of the body because there's an oral wall, if you like. I'm interested in all these things about shifting perception and shifting what the the reality is of sitting in a theatre because if you think about it when you sit in the theatre that is an artificial event right you watch the thing on stage and often it's representing something that's supposed to be real and so there's a sense in which it's one removed it's a kind of it's almost a virtual reality really everything that happens on the stage um, and I'm just very curious about all those interfaces and how, wow <laughs> how how do you I mean, we, we know that you're a choreographer who quite unusually actually spends an awful lot of time with scientists. We don't often hear about this, yeah. that a choreographer or an artist in general uh, will spend a lot of time with scientists. So where did that relationship begin? Is it is it you or them? And how does that work with them um, push the science forward or push the dance forward? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it started because, you know, I, as I explained a little bit earlier on, I worked a lot with uh, new technology. And this technology was always outside my body. So I was always thinking about the technology and the things that it did, whether that was you know, motion sensors or lasers or motion capture systems or broadband technologies. These are all things that do something. And I started to think, well, what actually are the possibilities of thinking about using technologies to explore some of the interior things of a body, the interior things of a mind? And because brain science and cognitive science has become so rich over the last 10, 15 years, partly because of, um, uh, you know, uh, imaging, partly because that people have got the technology now to be able to investigate some of those things, I thought, well, technology now is going to be able to reveal things of the internal that I think might be very interesting. So that got me started, okay, how do we explore the internal technology of a body and a mind? And then I kind of thought, well, this would be my dream. I would love to do a collaboration with um, the other artists that I work with completely cognitively. I would like to be able to think blue and I would like the set designer that I work with to have that same sense of blue. This is my dream. I'll tell you why it was so naive in a minute. And I would like to be able to think about something and collaborate actually cognitively rather than in real terms. How could you do that? Is there any way you could work with brain systems or kind of... So I, I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go and meet, you know, we met 12 cognitive scientists around the country in the UK and discuss it with them and see if they thought it was a crazy idea. And what was really interesting is none of them thought it was a crazy idea. Well, the fact that you got 12 of them in the same room yeah, might no, have sounded no, like a crazy idea. idea. No, exactly, exactly. How did you manage no. that? And we've done quite a lot since, actually. And I mean, the fact that they came, I think, is fantastic. I mean, we do hear that, you know, Laurie Anderson and others have been the artist and residents at NASA, but yeah, I mean, just yeah. the fact that you actually got in touch with them and got them there, like, Well, I think what you fantastic. find about scientists is that, one, they're very curious, and secondly, they're often, they often are working in the abstract. So, and actually, their process is analogous with a creative process. So we know. assume that it isn't, but in fact, but they're way ahead of us in yeah. that regard, well, okay, very so connected. Yeah, so, very. 
So I, I explained this idea and they kind of said, okay, look, Wayne, you know, at the moment where we are in brain science is we can work, we can probably tell you and talk to you about what happens in your brain when you move your finger and what happens in your brain when you think about moving your finger, which is a totally different thing. You're asking us what's happening in my brain when you're doing these really complicated, really complex, full-bodied motions. And so it's way, way too advanced. So you've got to understand where brain science is. That's the first thing. But actually, there's something very interesting in what you say about this idea that so often cognitive scientists or brain scientists work with people who have some kind of deficit or some kind of loss, so some loss of information. Um, so that might be through brain trauma or a stroke. And one part of the brain doesn't quite work and therefore they're able to work out, well, what does that bit do? And I just propose that perhaps choreographers and dancers have an excess of this thing called physical thinking, this kinesthetic intelligence. So we're better spatially than normal people. We have kind of better sense of our own bodies than normal people. Couldn't that be used as a yardstick in the other direction? So in excess. And they found that a very curious idea and thought that would be really an interesting project to start exploring. So that was the beginning of the relationship with the cognitive scientists. I made a piece called Ataxia where I wanted to explore what was the relationship between the brain and the body and how could you disrupt the patterns of the brain to the body so the body became discoordinated. And there's actually a disease called Friedrich's, Friedrich's ataxia, which actually does exactly that. So the scientists who were interested in that particular um, neurological condition were interested in working on this piece. And since then, it's been 10 years we've been doing this research with lots of different organisations and we always work on very different types of projects. So another project we've done very interesting at the University of San Diego, which is to do with process. And you think again, well, how could science work interestingly with the creative process? Well, one, um, this amazing um, cognitive scientist, David Kirsch in San Diego, works with a thing called distributed cognition. What happens when an idea propagates around a group and how does what things get left out, what things um, get carried forward, what things are de decided on consensus, and how does that work? And if you think about a creative process, especially a dance process, that's all that happens all the time. He typically is, you know, you could examine that in relationship to a dentist who's working with his fine instruments in a mouth, and uh, his assistant or her, the, her assistant is passing the instruments to him really seamlessly without talking about it. There's an order to it, there's a system to it, something is getting decided, but you don't actually know what the dynamic of that decision is. You could see that with somebody who's driving a tank. If you think about people in the military driving a tank and how complicated that is. So, um, playing football, how that actually works as a distributed cogni cognitive process. The dance process, the creative process in dance is perfect for examining that. And so we did a project with him where we literally looked at that and what was revealing to me about that is when you, um, when you think about making choreography and what you're doing in choreography, it's not actually what you are doing. So you think you're, you've learned how to talk about making choreography from university or from reading books. And it's a system, it's a pattern, but actually you're doing lots of other things. So explain how that, how you, you, you looked into that, but how did you look into that? Well, we looked into it by, um, they did a, 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 a process whereby I made a piece in four weeks in laboratory conditions. And laboratory conditions is having 12, 13 cognitive scientists watch you every day and notate what you do. And each decision that you uh, make completely filmed with however many it was seven cameras so your whole so it's a, this massive bank of um of choreographic decision making that they then use as data and analyze it they go through the whole thing and analyze it so he could tell me how much time i spent 
touching the dancers. He could tell me how much time I spent using words to describe what it was that I was doing. He could tell me how much time I spent using sonification, which is a thing I didn't even think about I use. So I go, when I'm making choreography, I use these strange sounds that have some kind of effect on how the body moves. I was never taught when I was making choreography that you could use sound to shape action. That seems to me like a pretty important thing that one might want to be able to do. How much time I was inside the object of making choreography, how much time I was on the outside, how much time the dancers really 100% understood the process that they were doing or how much they kind of understood it. And if it was a kind of, what was the thing that they were making? Would it be better in tasks, for example, if I took longer to explain the tasks that they really, really fully understood it so I'd get richer material? Or was it important in the process that I gave them a sense of the task, they worked quickly and you had something that you could then work with? So all these, this kind of like differentiation in terms of the process was fascinating. And we've done that now in three processes. So what's interesting for me and for the dancers, because it also happens to the dancers, the dancers do the talks to the cognitive scientists, they're very engaged in the whole thing. It helps us understand how we can make a better process for the things that we want to do and get richer material. Um, and get richer connection with the piece that we want to make. And for the scientists, it teaches them something about distributed cognition more widely, not in relationship to dance, but in terms of human behaviour. And they can use that science in lots of other applications. And we've done lots of Such very... Such as? Well, they, so if you think about, well, how is it that you can improve... How is it you could improve um, uh, collegiate relationships in business using a distributed cognition model? How is it that actually you could design hospitals better so that actually the functionality of um, moving instruments um, would work very well. It's very interesting, you know, in designs of hospitals that if, you know, if you're in an operating theatre which has one particular kind of dimension, so it works left to right and the bed is in the left-hand side and, the, you know, the, the surgeon works down at the right, if there's a, all of a sudden the surgeon is working in an opposite room where the, the bed is on the right-hand side and the um, patient is on the left and the surgeon is flipping between those two things often and the behavior the distributed model of behavior is changing so much very subtly but changing could that lead to more errors would it be better if each of those um, hospital rooms were designed in the same spatial geometry so you're always getting the same thing now it's a very it's actually a very simple concept but actually very meaningful and so this is what Possibly these investigations in terms of um, what we're doing in relationship to body and space and all those things. This is why they're helpful in a range of other applications. I often don't know what the applications could possibly be. I can't predict them. Though. But they have got these great ideas about how they might be able to be used in a wider context. And these relationships with uh, San Diego and MIT and Cambridge, these are ongoing, are they not? Mm. So it's, it's really a part of your constant process and and development if you will as as a choreographer definitely i mean they're not you know they're not let's do one just for this piece let's make a piece about distributed cognition that's not how they work what happens is that we're interested in um, having lots of relationships, well, not lots because you can't service lots, but several very clear projects. In um, and we've got several clear projects that we're working with at the moment that are ongoing, and from that things emerge. So we're developing a thing, we're developing two things at the moment. One's called a CTT, Choreographic Thinking Tools, and this is a, a system by which you can actually um, enhance the way in which you're able to make choreography by learning about um, how to work with images, for example. So I didn't know there are lots of categories of image. When I talk about image, and when we learn about image when we're in university, we think about visual image, so we know what the visual system does. 
But we never really talk about an oral image. So an oral image is an image that comes through the ears, you hear it, and you don't actually then necessarily see it, and it has some kind of effect. So actually that's typically how music might work. So mm. you don't actually always picture it. And a kinesthetic image, an image which is about motion, which is, doesn't, isn't in the visual system at all, if you can start to differentiate between those systems and understand how to work with them, I could build a visual image, convert it into an oral image, and use it kinesthetically to make some choreography. It's a very interesting kind of possibility. And again, it's how is it that you give dancers and choreographers more tools to resource their um, possibility to make interesting material. Mm -hmm. And the other um, project that we're working on Really, cognitive scientists a lot, when they want to understand something about the brain, they build models of the brain or models of that aspect of the brain to understand it. And those models typically are computer programs in some way. And so we're building a series of computer programs that models choreographic intelligence, and it's called the Choreographic Language Agents. And what that does is it thinks choreographically, and it thinks on its own. So it learns, it can trawl through databases and think on its own. But it, its use is not to make choreography, but it might build architecture, it might um, do something in relationship to sound. It's using choreographic thinking but not to make choreography. And we're at the very beginning of it, so we've done some very interesting and exciting work over the last two or three years. And I'm going to start to use with this choreographic agent for the first time in the making of a piece um, at the end of this year. It's a very beautiful thing. But actually, it thinks choreographically. It learns. It's an autonomous agent, so it does its thing. So one thing it might do is I make very particular types of decisions. I make these decisions... Uh, the computer's making its own decisions based on uh, the same kind of question that we have. It might say, yes, you would typically, it might predict that I would typically make that kind of decision, but have you thought of this? Oh, my god! Have you thought of that? What about if you really want something that's really going to disrupt that way of thinking, this pattern, this is nothing to do with that. And it's just very helpful. It's just like having a sounding board that allows you to think differently. And what I want to do is think differently. It's phenomenal, though, to think, you know, we, we sort of this classic um, idea that, you know, technology is going to take over the world. And yet, you know, you in, in a particular way, it's allowing you to not take over, but direct or and and react to at the same time how this creative process unfolds not sure yeah. if i've explained yeah, no, that correctly absolutely. but that's what it's sounding like to me well i think i think people are frightened of technology and i think absolutely. the only way to deal with technology is to really get in there and understand it and i think when you understand it you can understand how its application can be made more relevant to you well i mean it seems like you've had a lot of the same collaborators around you for a long time so i'm assuming that the dancers and designers and people who you've worked with musicians are not afraid and they've come with you on this journey. But but also it's Im important for people to understand that you are making a lot of work for other people. And uh, many years ago, you became the resident choreographer and artist in residence at the Royal Ballet. And again, yeah, that's another yeah. leap. So talk to us about that, about that, what that association was like and how, I mean, obviously they went after you, so they know what your intent is, what your choreographic language is. So Make that connection for us. Yeah, you know. well, I mean, I, I guess it was quite straightforward. I'd started in the early 2000s. I made my first ballet in 2000. And it was the first time I'd worked with dancers on point shoes. And again, it was just this idea of working with exploring the technology of a body. It just happened to be a, a, a style of dance that I didn't um Was it for the Royal Ballet? It was for first, the Royal Ballet, okay, yeah. Okay. It, it wasn't a style of dance that I knew. But again, you know, when you understand the kind of the biomechanics of a body and you can see and recognize signatures, it doesn't really matter what the language is, I don't think. I think choreography is beyond language um, in terms of dance language. Um, so I made this first piece, it was really interesting, and I started What did you think the moment that they invited you to make this piece? Did you think, oh my gosh, that's an obvious 
connection or well, oh my- well what was interesting is you know these things start small right so what happened was the opera house had just moved into the new covent garden they had a very small theater of about 400 seats which is in limbury and they decided to invite uh, they did this project called outside in where they invited some outside choreographers two of us me and jill clark into the royal ballet to right. make almost like little studio pieces just little experimental things just to see how the dancers would be and what would be that crossover and Brilliant. So it was a beginning, you know, right. and that was the the beginning of that. So I did that, and then um, uh, almost at the same time, Reed Anderson in Stuttgart asked me to go make my first big ballet on the main also stage. Also a wonderful Stuttgart, Canadian connection. Also <laughs> ma- amazing Canadian connection. Yeah. And he, I went and made my first ballet in Stuttgart, which is a really big success. And then I just started to kind of, you know, build that portfolio of work. And then in 2006, by then I'd made quite a lot of ballets. And always interested to work with different types of dancers and in different circumstances. The rhythm of working in a ballet company is very different. The scale of operation is different. The opportunity to work with an orchestra is different. You know, all these things I find fascinating. Um, And I made a piece um, uh, called Chroma with the architect John Pawson and Music with the White Stripes and Joby Talbot. Um, and it was a really huge hit for Common Garden. I mean, really, uh, it was uh, that evening it opened at Common Garden was incredible because people were actually stamping in the theatre, and it was very, un- very, very unusual. Fantastic. But what's interesting, I think, about <coughs> the Opera House, my connection with the Opera House, it's not just about my choreography. I think what they um, have wanted to do and want to do, and we are doing now, is really think about what are the creative resources in that whole building that we can exploit and use. And so, of course, one of my uh, responsibilities there is to actually make work and to inspire the dancers to work differently. That's one of my jobs alongside other choreographers. But one of my big jobs there is to actually mentor younger choreographers and to actually give them the opportunity to be making their own pieces. There's a real dirge um, of um, young choreographers making ballet. You know, the rigor of um, kind of thinking in relationship to how young choreographers are developed in ballet companies is very way behind the independent sector. The independent sector have always had a very rich um, um, process of developing their choreographers and it's just not translated to some of those big big lyric companies. And the Royal Ballet recognised that and wanted to find a way, a structure that we could do it. So one of my big jobs there is to do exactly that and I invented a whole series of programmes at the Opera House that do it because If you think about it, the Opera House has an amazing kind of equity in that building in terms of people passing through. There are 19 brilliant choreographers passing through the opera every year. Even if the Royal Ballet aren't doing lots and lots of new work, there are still lots of choreographers around that building. And I wanted to do several things. I set up a programme called Arrows, where I take a group of young um, choreographers from the Royal Ballet, typically about 20 of them, out to see other things. So that's very important. So that they go out and see independent dance. We've done brilliant things like Anish Kapoor took us around his um, exhibition at the Royal Academy with Salman Rushdie talking about the work. We've done kind of studio visits to people like Anthony Gormley's studio. I've taken them to very esoteric and very strange um, performance. And really, the group that I took last to Cunningham had never seen Merce Cunningham. Now, I just don't think you can make choreography in this day and age without know- without knowing who Merce Cunningham is and I without know. knowing who Boris Chalmers is and without knowing who Hoffer Schechter is. I think you have to place and contextualise your choreography in a wider picture. So we do this great arrows thing and it's really good fun, very informal, but it's about getting them out. There's a choreographic group at the Opera House that take care of 
discussing, well, just having a place to discuss choreography in the context of the Opera House in relationship to um, the school and in relationship to the main stage and all the stages, to get out of the habit of thinking that all choreographers want to work on the main stage, that this idea of there's this ladder of opportunity where you make a studio piece and you go in the bigger theatre and you go on the main stage. No, actually, some choreographers work best and always in smaller spaces and actually you have to find your right rhythm and the piece has to fit the right place and not to feel that you're a failure if you're not on the main stage and only on the smaller stage and not to always have this aspiration that you want to be big 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 um but that if there is talent there who want to do that that we have to you know produce them to be able to do it so this season we had two very young choreographers um make on the main stage of the opera house um We've got a very young girl making on the main stage of the Opera House in um, July who's 15 um, on on some Royal Ballet dancers. You know, so just changing the concept of actually what's possible within the resources that we we have there. And I think critically, the final one of the other things that we um, initiated there was this thing called dialogues. And the idea is that I don't want to be the arbiter of all choreography at the Opera House with Monica. I don't think that's my role. My role is to encourage people to make and I want to be there as a sounding board to encourage them just to have a go. That's my um, big passion. I don't want to be there saying, I think it's this and I think it's that. So what we decided to do is is build a kind of a dialogues programme, which is a critical feedback programme, where we invite lots of independent um, choreographers to actually mentor each of the dancers. So each of the dancers has their own independent choreographer mentoring them. So it might be Jonathan Burrows or Jill Clark or Kim Brandstrup, whoever's the most appropriate for that choreographer. But it's an outside person. It's an independent conversation that's not related to the management of the opera house and it's proved really really positive for those dancers they're having a wider view they're having a more they're having to grapple with harder conversations because if you think about it i mean dancers in ballet companies have got it very lucky in terms of they've got the spaces to be able to make work and they've got amazing dancers to be able to work it make it on and you know in the independent sector it's so totally not like Absolutely, that you yeah. know you have to find money you have to find space it's a very different thing and i think we can learn a lot from the independent sector on how to develop choreographers in big lyric companies but as a creator when you first started working in this ballet structure did you find it very different to work with ballet dancers than contemporary trained dancers I did find it quite different. I mean, I did find it different initially, but I, I think it's, a, again, it's kind of a, about a point of view and about a kind of a curiosity in the individual. And I think, you know, what's interesting, if you, I mean, honestly, if you look at the opportunities of, of, of the education of a ballet dancer, actually to have autonomy and to have kind of a creative choices throughout their career are actually very limited. It's always in the hands of other people. And actually, you know, I, I, I remember going actually to Stuttgart once and saying to the, the dancers in Stuttgart, OK, just get into twos, as if you would do a primary school, just get with a partner. And then I sat down because it was taking so long. And I thought, I'm not solving this problem for you. This is really straightforward. You can do this. And it literally took like 12 minutes. <laughs> oh my God. It took 12 minutes for them actually to find someone to work with. And you just see that that's actually trained out of them, this possibility. And I think, you know, my work at the Royal Ballet School and my work with companies now, because I'm I'm known to them, they're used to, if that happens again now, they go quick, you know, the the, the method of working is really assumed in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, ballet dancers have some some incredible gifts and they have incredible ways of being able to touch and imbue material with a particular emotionality or a particular sense you know and all those things are wonderful and I really learn from them that way and I what I've tried to do at the Royal Ballet and other companies just change the culture of how they work and I've been able to do that at the Royal Opera House because Monica Mason who's the director of the Royal Ballet who's actually been there 55 years which which is incredible is so open she's curious 
open and gives you the room to be able to do it. And she's 100% behind those things. She has a massive respect, obviously, for the classics. She's got a massively brilliant eye for all the things that she needs to do. But she wants also those young dancers to be able to have living choreographers breathing life into new work with them. And she's going to support it. And I think without that support, you can't do it. Yeah, but when you think about a hundred years ago, that's what was happening, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, like absolutely. nobody knew Balanchine when he first started, and no, now we're sort exactly. of looking at Balanchine as sort of an old fart whose work we keep creating because it's still very powerful. But yeah, no, it's true. Um, now, Chroma, of course, was a huge success. It was. It's now in the repertoire of I think three companies. Is that right? San Francisco. It's San in Diego, uh, the National Ballet of Canada. It's in um, San Francisco, and it's going to the Bolshoi this season as well, and the Royal. Yeah, that's tremendous. And do you think other ballets will will make that leap, if you will, from well? I'm, I'm sure they will. I mean, I've I've never allowed it to happen before. So actually, it's, I've only just started to allow that to happen. What made you choose that? Um, I think partly because Karen Kane is very persuasive. She had Chroma first <laughs> and so lovely that I couldn't resist. I know. I, I believe I just, me. I yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really love her. And I, um, Monica, actually, Monica Mason, the director of the Royal Ballet, is a big fan of hers. And it, she said to me, you know, Karen would really love to talk to you about taking Chroma to Canada and I thought they meant on tour and then she said no no actually you know so I went to Canada and I met her and she completely charmed me and also I really respect what she's trying to do with the company and what she is doing with the company and how she's really pushing the company into a different place and wants to push the dancers into a different place and I think it's amazing the choreographers you know she's got this new Ratmansky piece that she's gonna I mean she's really you know uh, Alice is going there Chris's piece she's really pushing that company forward and I thought well this would be a good experiment to see how it goes and honestly it went absolutely brilliantly the dancers responded phenomenally to the work and the audiences went really they went nuts they were really very excited um so that was the first time I did it partly because I feel very strongly that I want to be able to look after the work myself and it was actually advice from Bill in fact also I have to say you know you just be really careful where you propagate your pieces you know because sometimes they end up looking not like the piece you thought I've had was. that conversation with him actually yeah. when he was really trying to uh, get us to bring um, one of the pieces of his that Catherine Bennett's had had yeah, yeah. out of Flanders. Yeah, really clear. Yeah, really clear. And and I hadn't realized until that conversation that he actually wasn't perhaps as pleased everywhere yeah. else. So yeah. that was very interesting. So I thought it was very good advice. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, lots of companies have asked for Chroma, and I selected the ones that I thought would be interesting to do. And then now, uh, and also because. Uh, um, the coming out of the rights period for from the opera house there's a, you know always a, a kind of a three year exclusivity from the day in which they're born but the uh, quite a lot of the other pieces are being restaged elsewhere but again only where i i'm going to be able not to do all of the restaging but to be present for those final weeks on stage i think it's really important while i'm still alive to be able to do it Oh, you're still alive. You, ha- you have at least another 60, 70, 80 I don't years. Know, Come on. Know, when I was in San Diego, it was so funny because when I was in San Diego recently, I um, was going to go teach the undergraduates, and um, I went to look in the um, I went to look in the window where they were teaching, and I thought, oh no, no, that's they're all like young. They all look about twelve, and then that, they were the <laughs> undergraduates. So I realised that actually I'm you know creeping yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's all for this edition of NAC Dance Podcast. Join us next time for part three of the conversation with Wayne McGregor. Please send us your comments and questions. You can email us at necpodcasts at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca. There you will find past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Until next time, this is Alary Evans saying goodbye from Canada's NAC Dance.